Hello and good evening. I'm going to talk about the language of the heart and I thought I'd start by telling you some of the, um, or one of the things that made me even think of the concept of the language of the heart. I thought the best way to do that would be to tell you a little bit about what made me even start to write my book since I've titled that The Language of the Heart. I need to tell you a little bit about myself in order to do that. I was born in Melbourne and I grew up and lived here for four years. Very grown up, I moved to Sydney for one year and even more grown up, I moved to Brisbane where I spent my childhood. I, th I believe that was the start of that kind of thinking about the language of the heart because growing up in Queensland is a lot different to growing up in Melbourne. And I'm going to give you the perspective of now of a 13 year old coming back to Melbourne from Brisbane and the kind of things you notice and the effect it has. For one thing, in Brisbane, there's not really seven foot high fences between the houses and you can see between the backyards. Can you imagine the difference that would make to your living, to your relationship with your neighbours and so on, if you didn't have your seven foot high fences and you had the possibility of stepping over the fence <laughs> and running into the neighbour's yard to have a barbecue or several houses up seeing your neighbour go out into the backyard to clean their shoes in the morning. <laughs> it's quite different. And I can remember coming back to Melbourne and my mother the whole way down in the car was very distressed. She was lying on the back seat and I'd never seen her that closed down or angry in my life. She didn't hardly speak to my father the whole way home. And I kept sitting there thinking, what's wrong with mum? And when I came to the house that we were meant to live in and I walked in and I slowly walked in, and I looked around and I went out into the backyard and I saw that fence, I thought, that's what's wrong with mum. <laughs> and then when I went to school, we had our first singing lesson. And there was a PA system. And on the PA system was the singing that we were meant to do. We all sat in separate desks and singing came. And we had to open our books at green sleeves and start to sing. And the singing lessons that I'd remembered from Queensland were around a piano where you learnt off by heart the words before you were allowed to sing the song and then you all sang together. And this was the start, I think, of this thinking about the language of the heart, even though I would never have known that that's what I was thinking about then. But I remember making all these observations even as a child about life and people in it. Noticing things like my mother when we had to entertain guests at dinner parties, she'd put on these false eyelashes and be embarrassed when the door opened and the false eyelash will have fallen down here and she'd run off and try to fix it. And, and um, there was something about our life and our life when we were just driving along in the car with mum and dad singing songs at my mother singing at the top of her voice. And then as time went on, I remember going along to a, an event where, my, where there was song sheets on the, on the seats like where you're sitting now and my mother started to sing and her voice was completely closed down. And I thought, what is it about life that's done that to her? from the point of having me and being open and alive to being quite closed down. And then I thought about myself too, how I used to run around wild in the bush as a young girl, spend the day in the bush 
and be very open and free. And I started to get sort of depressed through my teens and so on. Until I got to the point of being about 24, where I'd had enough of the Western world because these, all of these things started to compound upon each other. And I started to feel very like, isn't there something more? And I had a, a nervous breakdown. At that stage I was 23, I was a teacher, and I found the system very difficult to work with. When I had innovative ideas, it was very difficult to get them through. And slowly but surely I started to feel incapable of getting any life anywhere, let alone in myself as well as anywhere else. So I went overseas and I think in my own way I was looking for God, looking for that connection to, to the divinity. Because when I was confirmed, for example, when I was 13, I can remember being confirmed by the Archbishop of Canterbury and having him put his hand down upon my head and me thinking, but I don't know whether I believe in this. And I didn't feel very good about that because that was my confirmation. That was when I was supposed to come into the faith. I was um, Church of England. And I felt so distressed about it that I went home and I burned my copy of the New Testament that was given to me. That's how distressed I was about it. And after that, I used to call myself an atheist because I wasn't sure that what the church had taught was, was right. I'd remembered going to, is it Sunday school classes? and um, asking the priest when he said God was this and God was that and God was all these other things, I put up my hand and I said, how do you know? And he said, you insolent little child, you get out of here. And I can remember at the time that I didn't have a bone of insolence in me. I was just asking genuinely, how, how do you know? Very curious. So I asked, and that was the answer. And I had a lot of difficulty coping with those answers and making sense of it all. So I went travelling overseas and landed in a Muslim country at 24, suddenly realised the benefits of Christianity. <laughs> but I was still searching, really searching. And I was feeling at this point in my life very alone, very isolated and like I've just said to you, I was having a breakdown I'm sure. I felt that way that I couldn't coordinate my arms and my legs. If I smiled at someone or someone smiled at me I'd burst into tears because I hadn't had any real warmth for quite some time in my life. And I'm not quite sure how that happened but it did. So when I took this journey Slowly but surely, things started to change. I found when I went there that I wasn't looked upon in role anymore. And I started to realise that I could be whoever I wanted to be. I didn't have to be anyone's sister. I didn't have to be an intelligent school teacher. I didn't have to be anything, really. Just a person. And when I went to Nepal, I noticed a profound shift. When I arrived in Nepal, I was quite terrified of the, the different culture. But I got enough courage up to walk out into the streets and suddenly something very different started to happen. What started to happen was that the people started to really look into my eyes and they'd stay there for a long time, not being frightened to shift their eye contact. They weren't sort of darting like this, like we do often in the West. For example, if we catch a train, everybody's got the newspapers up and if someone catches you looking there, <laughs> like, like this or 
like that, that kind of jolty, no, I, no, I wasn't looking at you, sort of thing. It was very different in Nepal. The people would look and really look and they'd look into my heart through their eyes and I would see their heart through my eyes. And that really affected me a lot. I could then start to do things like say, hello, to the children. I could use whatever voice I wanted as well. I didn't have to say, hello, my name's such and such. I could say, hello. There was all these possibilities that I had with my being, with my, my body, with my voice, with my eyes, with my touch. I could even touch someone like that. And I didn't have to say anything. All I had to do was do that. And a lot of, a lot of exchange would happen. I didn't have to be intelligent. I didn't have to come up with wonderful long sentences or convince anyone with my intellect. The only thing I needed to do was have heart. And I didn't even need to have to do that. That was just starting to happen. So I spent a lot of time in Nepal walking along in the mountains. And sometimes I'd just see children all day. And they wouldn't have seen many white people in some of the places that I was walking. And even when they had, they were so excited by this, this opportunity for someone new to talk to. So I was quite excited that they were excited to see me. Because I thought, but I'm nothing. How can they be excited to see me? But they were, they were very excited to see me and I didn't have to do anything to make them excited, they were just excited. And they'd run up and they'd say, hello, hello, hello. And then I, occasionally they did things like, I can remember one little boy coming up and he went, he went, pointed to my skin and he said, good, good. And then he pointed to his own skin, his own brown skin and he said, bad, bad. And I said, no, good, 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 good. And he went, I said, good, 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 good. And he went, good, good. I said, good, good. And he went. So much can be explained in little tiny sentences. So that were some of the experiences I had in Nepal. I also got very sick in Nepal. And when I went to Bangladesh, which was before I went to Nepal, I got even more sick. I got, um, was it amoebic dysentery and acute colitis all at once. <laughs> and um, I was very frightened in, in Bangladesh because I thought that I would have to be operated on. And, you know, if I can, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Bangladesh, but they have these rusty knives on the wall that are sort of shaped like that and then the doctor sits there with his big eyes and he says we must operate <laughs> and you sort of know you've got to run out of there very quick especially since outside the hospital it's not really a hospital but that's where they do the operations there's these little red crosses outside and there's about 10 12 lepers outside with their arms bandaged up and so on so I was quite petrified of being operated on there and when I said no, he said, well, you must, because he told me I had appendicitis, which I was sure I didn't have. Thank goodness I had this intuition inside. And he said, if you get on the plane, you'll burst. You'll die. So you must be operated on it. I'm like, no. And I ran out of there. And then I arrived in Nepal, and I had the experiences I told you about. Before I started to walk in Nepal, I had a a family who looked after me for about a month, waking me up and making me drink water and sugar. Water and sugar and salt in the water. So I felt lucky to be alive, but something in me told me, no, I couldn't go back home yet. And I didn't know why. I just knew that I hadn't achieved somewhere in my heart what I'd come to do. So I kept travelling 
and I went to India. And when I went to India, even though I'd been overseas for f at that stage for five months, I really, it was like a huge culture shock to go into India, even from that other part of Asia, because there were so many hundreds of people staring at me the whole time. <laughs> it's very difficult to get used to, or to even understand, and then to see the conditions in which those people live is quite shocking and also awakening in many ways because it's easy to see there's a completely different consciousness in those people and the different consciousness they have, sometimes higher, sometimes lower, as I guess there is everywhere. And when I went to India I met this sadhu. He was dressed in orange and he was mute, he had no voice, absolutely no voice, except he had this squeal. So when he spoke, he went, if I see if I can do it, he went, that's how he sounded. And he was the most enlightening man that I had ever at that time met. He had the greatest sense of humour, somehow through that he told a thousand stories and he just seemed to sort of get them into your head without speaking and I couldn't figure out how he was doing it but he was doing it. He was using his eyes and he was using the sound and he was using his heart but he had not a word that could be said. So one day we were in the, this bazaar in Varanasi, which is a very tiny, tiny streets. It would be a third of this aisle is the main street of this bazaar. So that you only possibly go by in singles down there. Anyway, one day I was walking from where I was staying down to, the, to what was called the Gats, which was where they had the dead bodies and they all swam and <laughs> was with cows and mangoes and yogurt. That probably describes it. And lots of sounds, lots of bells. And I was on my way down there and this, this sadhu who I'd met already came up and he said, <laughs> and what he wanted was for me to go to dinner. And I knew that. I don't know how, but I did. And he'd arranged this dinner with about 12 people. So we all went and we ate this huge feast. And then this man came with a, a cloak on, a cream-colored blanketed cloak. And the sadhu was explaining, still without voice, and I can't quite figure out how to tell you how this happened, but it did happen. He explained that this man couldn't see. But I could see he could see. His eyes were alive. They were functioning. He could see visibly. And after a while, I cottoned on what he meant. He meant he couldn't perceive things. He couldn't understand things. And after a while, I realized that he couldn't. He was there looking for his long lost love. He'd been in India for some years. And he was totally trapped in his own illusion so that he couldn't see anything but this desire to have this woman and he couldn't see anything else. He couldn't see that the woman was actually a fantasy and she'd never be there because it was very real to him. I never understood that before. I never understood about perception and consciousness until that sadhu helped me see that through showing me that man's blindness he gave me my awareness. And we went down and sat all night and watched the sun go down and watched the sun come up. And then I walked back, not at all tired, like as if I hadn't not slept. And life started to change. It started to change quite a lot. 
I'd also at that stage had a lot of back trouble and I'd been going to this masseur on the gats who gave massages for one rupee and they lasted about an hour and a half and he did them on hard concrete and he had muscles like you wouldn't believe and he was rough as anything but they were wonderful and on day seven he cracked my entire back and I never had back trouble again and I'd had back trouble for a good three or four years so I left Varanasi wondering, not really knowing quite what had happened to me, but knowing that the way I left and the way I arrived were two different states. And life continued. And then things weren't so good on my journey. And some not very nice things happened to me. I don't think I'll go into them now. But some not so nice things happened to me. And so, after spending quite a bit of time in Manali, which is also in the Himalayas, I knew I had to come back to the West. I didn't really want to, because I could see how you could easily spend the rest of your life in this place. It was like a, a play. Things happened every day. And it would be easy, very easy to stay in that play and allow myself to be taken by that play of life. But I started to see that, no, no, it was time I started to take a bit of responsibility for the path I was walking. So I decided to go home. But on the way home, I thought I would go via Sri Lanka, which I did. And I wanted to go to Europe as well because, you know, I wanted to tell people back home I'd been to Europe. That sounded like it was important. <laughs> so I set about on that journey. And Sri Lanka, as you know, was at war in 1983, which was when this was. And so I saw a lot of things there I didn't really like. Not only that happened to me, but that happened to other people. I saw death and burning bodies and looting and rape and many, many horrible things. And I started to wonder about life again. I started to wonder about God again. And I went to this place in Holland afterwards. And I was quite numbed by my experience in Sri Lanka. And I met this woman, this very beautiful woman, who was quite amazed at my story. I hadn't talked to anyone about what had happened to me and what I'd seen and so on until I went to this Christian Youth Health Hostel in Holland. And I went to this hostel. She said to me, you know, you really, you really should pray. I thought, pray? I can't pray. I'm an atheist. <gasps> Atheists don't pray. She said, an atheist? She said, I think you do believe in God. And I, I stood back and I thought, well, I knew that from something that happened in the Sri Lankan experience, that when I was really in trouble, the first thing I did was look up the sky and say, why me? And I knew at that moment that I was looking up at the sky and saying, why me? That I actually did believe in God. Otherwise, who else was I talking to? <laughs> so, I thought, well, she could be right, but I don't know how to do it. And I didn't want to let on to her. I didn't know how to do it. So, it took me two weeks to get the courage up to say to her, would she help me? She said, okay, I'll help you. Would you come upstairs? I said, well, I've got a bus to catch because I'm going to France in an hour and a half. She said, that's fine, just come upstairs. So she started to talk to me and I felt really weird because I was in this room upstairs and there was something like 300 Bibles all across the wall and I was in this little room. And we sat down 
and she took my hand and she started to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And I had to repeat the words after her. So I repeated these words after her. And as I did that, something really different happened. Something that I hadn't experienced before that I could remember in this lifetime happened. And what happened was the whole room became gone and she and I became gone and there was only this white light. And I didn't know what was going on. But suddenly I saw this very tiny image about this size of Lord Jesus. And when I saw that little image, it felt like it was deep, 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 deep inside here. I cried like I don't think I've ever cried before. And I cried and 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 cried for an hour and a quarter. And it felt like five minutes. And during that time, I felt like I was huge and tiny at the same time. <laughs> and this was sort of intermittent, feeling really little and really big and like white light. And then suddenly the room came back and she was there and she was thanking Lord Jesus for being able to witness this. And I looked at her and I looked, I looked at the time and I jumped quickly because I knew I had to be on a bus to France. And I said, what do I do now? <laughs> she reached across and she took one of the Bibles, she put it in my hand and she said, this will be your way shower. So here I was with my Bible again after I'd burnt the last one. <laughs> I thought, right, I don't burn this one. <laughs> And I took the Bible with me on the bus and I opened it up and it said something in there about asking for what you want. If you want something, ask for it, it said. So I closed it and I thought, what do I want? I thought, I want, I want to meet people who might believe in God because I was aware that all the people I'd met until this point were people who didn't believe in God. In fact, they weren't very nice to each other at all and very rarely nice to me. But somewhere I felt like that's what I deserved and these were the sort of people I was attracting. So I asked, I asked if I could meet somebody who might believe in God. I closed the book and put it down. Then the man beside me said, do you believe in God? Because <laughs> I had this Bible out and I just nearly fell off the seat. <laughs> I said, well, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> and he said, so am I. I'm not sure. And I said, I'm not sure either. I said, why aren't you sure? <laughs> so we started this long dialogue and we, we talked for quite a long time about God. And I can remember then getting to France, the journey seemed like such a short one because I had this man to talk to about the possibility of the existence of God. And I was over the moon. There was part of me really waking up, like it had been asleep for a really long time. The possibility of God in the life. And then I started to think about what, one of the things that really pushed me to not believing and thinking that I was an atheist was this girl I'd met, very intellectual sort of a girl, who made me see this and very scientifically showed me that if you believed in God, then you were somehow not the full quid. You somehow needed a crutch or something to lean on and you used God as that crutch. I was so convinced by her intellectual argument, plus all my other own little doubts, it all fitted well and I, I just took it on board and went along with it. And then I started to realise that that was there and I thought, well, what if it's not true? What if 
What if, can you be a strong person with no real insecurities or anything and believe in God? Is it only when you're really desperate, like I was really quite desperate, that you come to God? Or can you be an actualized and strong person and believe in God? I started to think about that and I started to, to like the idea that maybe I didn't have to not believe in God to be strong. Maybe I could believe in God and be strong. So I started then to think about that. And something started to grow in me, a strength started to come into me. And I started to be able to say after a while, I believe in God and feel strength, lots of strength. I came back to Australia and I went to St Paul's Cathedral where I had been confirmed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. I went right back to that spot and I stood at that spot and I said to God, I said, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I stopped believing in you. It really wasn't you. It was the abuse of you and what people said about you and did with you and manipulated with you. And, and I'm sorry, I said. And when I did that, I felt this profound shift in my heart and I cried again, like I'd cried when the girl had given me the Bible. And I looked around the church and it was filled with white light. White light everywhere I looked, just like I'd felt in that Christian youth hostel in, in um, Holland. And I was able to go and tell my mother that I believed in Jesus. And by this stage I don't think my mother knew what to do because life had taken her to another point where she wasn't sure. So, I could see her half glad though. Then I came back here and I had had some pretty horrible experiences and I believe that that had some pretty profounding impact on my psych psyche. So much so that the body was very, very stressed and I wasn't aware of it. Travelling alone as a woman in those countries was quite stressful to say the least. And when I got home I knew I was safe and somehow my body fell apart. And I had an asthma attack and both my lungs collapsed and I died. And I went to the Alfred Hospital, the police took me and I was brought back to life and in a coma for a couple of weeks. And then when I came out of that experience, I had another consciousness, different to the one I had before I began. But the one thing that was with me, that was with me before and was with me after was this white light. And this imprint or impression of Jesus and it's still with me now and it's changed my life. I've often had the um, been concerned I was even then when that happened I can remember getting up and worrying that I was going to sound like an evangelist forever and like I was going to run around and tell people that they had to feel happy now and so on. That hasn't happened, it did for a little while, but I've gotten over that. And even though to some of you I might sound a bit like an evangelist right this minute, I can assure you I'm not. But what I'd like to impress upon you by telling you this is that that help is available to us if we want it. And that all we need to have that light come into our lives, to change our lives, to give us new consciousness, is to want from the heart and to really ask from the heart for that change. You know, I still get depressed and still get anxious and fearful and worried and, 
still have my shadow side as big as ever, sometimes bigger I think, only because I can see it now. Before I never used to see it, I was just immersed in it. But even though I know that's there, there's this other knowing of this light that never goes away. That even when I go into darkness, I know it's going to be there at the other end when I come out. And so I wrote this book, The Language of the Heart, because for one thing I got tired of people asking me how I came to be like I am. So many people did when they'd come for healing or counselling. How, how did you get to this point? So I wrote this book, The Language of the Heart, and I went through a process of writing that book because I didn't really want to write it. I would rather have sat back or crawled under the carpet and not said anything. But I got very strong tooth pain. <laughs> and unless I wrote, the tooth pain wouldn't go away. <laughs> and when I did guided imageries and healings on this pain in the tooth, what I saw was an image of the tooth in the tooth being a nerve. And I wondered, why are you showing me the nerve? And the answer was, you have to have the nerve to tell people, to speak. You can't keep it tight any longer. What I'd done was I'd, the dentist told me that my bite was so tight, like this, that one of the teeth had split right down into the gum. And I thought, well, if my bite's tight, what is it I'm not saying that I should say? Running around the house in excruciating pain unless I sat down and wrote. And that happened for three quarters of the book. And about halfway through the book I said, but I'm writing it, I'm writing it, can't I not have pain? And the answer from inside me was no, if we stop now, you'll stop now. And I knew that was true. <laughs> because it's sometimes hard to tell people our stories, but we all have one. We all have our own, even as I'm telling you now, I'm sure you all have your own stories about your experiences and how you came to be who you are. And I've learned through these experiences many things, even through things like finding that nerve as being the symbol for that pain in my body and understanding that it was what was needed for me to start to, to speak and say things. There's been many symbols and many learning lessons and I've tried to write that in the book The Language of the Heart because there is a journey and there is a time we have to sometimes go through these experiences in life to be able to be sort of nudged on the way closer to that light. And then even when we find the light, there's a whole process that goes on of learning how to talk with that light, how to dialogue with it, how to, to make it real, how to start listening to those voices, those more positive voices in our minds and hearts and how to listen to that voice in here. I was so weak, so I was in a wheelchair and this was a couple of months after that death experience and I was still in the Alfred Hospital and the nurse decided it was time I went outside. So I hopped in the wheelchair and went outside and there were some men in the park playing cricket and the sky was blue and there were birds in the trees and I couldn't believe the beauty of the world and I cried and cried and cried at how beautiful the world is. And not that long ago I drove past the Alfred Hospital and I thought, did I really do that? <laughs> because life changes. Sometimes we remember its preciousness and sometimes we forget and Sometimes we have gratitude for things and sometimes we don't. And that's okay, that's, that's what it's like.
I remember meeting a man in Singapore called Ishwara Sama at the telephone exchange. I'd never met him before. He was a Brahmin. He was 56 years old. And I had gone, it was Christmas Eve, to make a phone call to my parents at home. And I was just at the exchange on my own and he was there and he said, Hello, pleased to meet you. And I didn't know him, he looked a bit strange to me. He was Indian man and he had a white sheet over half of his body. And, um, but he had all these other younger people behind him which seemed to give him some sort of reverence. And he seemed nice when I looked into his eyes. They were huge and brown and full of love. And he asked me if I'd go to a, a wedding. And he told me where it was and said it was on the next day and he'd love it if I came. So I went to this wedding and then I realised that he was the priest at this wedding. And it was something completely like I've never seen before. It was a betrothment and the bride and groom had never met. He was in red and white and she was in gold and there was, it was a Hindu wedding with lots of colour and this huge feast afterwards. And then the man came, Ishwara, came straight to the point afterwards and he said to me, I've asked you because I'd like you to give me some money. And I had bells ring in my head about con artists overseas and all the sorts of things that to watch out for when you travel and so on. And the bells rang in my head and I thought, oh. and then he said, he kept talking and he said, I'm asking you because God has told me to. And I thought, you know, do I believe this man or not? Because everything about him, his eyes were, was beautiful and loving. And I thought, do I believe this man? Do I really let that consciousness or understanding come in? Or do I think that he is one of these con artist type people? But there's nothing about him to lead me to believe this, except that he was asking me for money, which was what people told me that con artists would do. So I went away and I thought about it. And he told me that he wanted the money for a family in Sri Lanka. And the mother, sorry, the father and the sons of the, the family had been killed in the war. And I had been in Sri Lanka, that's where I'd had my dreadful trouble and I knew the state of affairs was not good. And I thought, isn't this strange? This was a couple of years later. This was when I'd come back after the death experience, gone back overseas, and I met this man asking me for money for people in Sri Lanka. I had $1,000 in my possession, which isn't a lot of money when you want to be away overseas for a year. And I thought, well, what do I do? He said, you ask God how much you should give me. <laughs> so I thought, all right, I'll do that. And I thought, well, how do I talk to God? Now, this was a new one. How do I talk to God and find out? And he said, well, sometimes when I want to know things, sometimes I sleep on it. He said, you go back to your hotel and sleep on it and you'll know how much to give. He said, it could be nothing. He just told me to ask. I thought, so I went home back to the hotel and I asked, I woke up with this figure in my mind and it was 10%. And I went back and I said, how much do you need? And he said, well actually we need 35 pound a month so that they can stay living in their house. I said, that'll do. I'll send them 35 pound a month. And I thought in my head, I'll get a job in England and then I can pay these, pay this, this money. So we made this agreement and we sorted out how I was going to send that money. Then I kept travelling and I got to Malaysia and I met this man who came up to me and he said, I've been robbed. I need some money. Can you give me some money? <laughs> and I said, oh, he's got to be a drug addict. He's not priestly. <gasps> I looked at him and I said, I, look, oh, Gosh, what do I do? I said, I said, look, I'll sleep on it and I'll tell you tomorrow. And he said, that's fine. And he said, I've got no money, I've been robbed and I need to get back to my um, family in France. 
and he looked like a drug addict. You know, he was thin, and but he didn't have any drugs. And all night I kept thinking about this man, and should I give money to this man? And I kept thinking about this man, and I woke up in the morning. I really didn't want to do the wrong thing. I didn't want to give money to someone for drugs. And I didn't want to not give it if he really needed it. So I thought, what do I do? I thought, I just have to trust. I gave him the money and I felt, oh, he's going to use it for drugs. But I had to let go of it. I'd given it to him. I kept travelling. And a year and a half later, when I'd worked in England and sent money off to Ishwara for this Sri Lankan family and so on, I was not really ready to leave England and I was robbed. Everything I had was taken. I had over $3,000 worth of things with me. They were all taken, all of the photographs, all of the memories, and I'd, I'd written seven, 70 poems and illustrated them. They were all stolen too. And the only thing that was left on the ground I don't know how it got left in the ground because it was all zipped up in my tent, everything. Well, there was two things left on the ground. One was a broken mirror, which is interesting if you think about it. And the other was a little tiny picture of Vishwara Sama. And I knew when I walked up to this empty place where all my things had been, that Part of me was really angry and sad, and this other part kept lifting up like this huge being. And I kept thinking, being split between these two consciousnesses, one which was devastated and one which was so relieved, I thought, thank God I don't have to carry that pack around anymore, this huge pack that I carried everything in. And then when I saw the little picture, I thought of the people in Sri Lanka. And I thought about how really I'd lost nothing. I thought of their lives and what they were going through and how $3,000 worth of things is really nothing in a way. But it was something in another way because I didn't have any money and I was in England. I had a ticket to Thailand. I didn't even have a toothbrush. And I had the dress that I had on. That was it. So I went to Thailand on this ticket. I knew I couldn't get any further because I didn't have a ticket that went all the way home. And I sat on the plane. I nearly got out at that place, Dubai, because there was this very nice Arabian man sitting next to me trying to convince me to. <laughs> well, <laughs> I nearly did. And then this woman got on from the Philippines told me this story about how she'd been um, betrothed from the Philippines to there and she'd been trapped there for 10 days and been trying to get out and how horrible the men were. I sat there and thought, thank God I didn't get off the plane. I was very naive in those days. And I got home. I went to Thailand and I had to sleep on hotel roofs for a couple of weeks because I had no money and I had to ask for food and had to have everybody thinking that I was a drug addict. And I started to understand then something about karma. The other thing that started to happen to me was, or that did happen, to really bring home karma as a, as a fact of life was standing at the Australian Embassy in England and asking for money and them saying, no, no, sorry, love. People have cried wolf too many times. I said, but I've been robbed. And they said, yes, so is everybody else. <gasps> <laughs> so, I stood there and I was telling someone my story. And this girl was walking past and she heard it. She reached into her pocket. She walked by. She came back and she passed me 50 pound. And 50 pound was the exact amount I'd given the French fellow who'd asked me for money. And I just, when that 50 pound went into my hand, it turned into $100 before my eyes and I saw it going the other way. Like a, it was about a year and a half later. And I thought, oh, karma. I didn't even know I knew the word. <laughs> but suddenly, 
I knew what karma was. And then I went to the American Express and I had nothing and I'd been on the streets for two weeks in Thailand. I had, by the way, rung my mother because, from England because the police let me do that and money was on its way so I had to wait in Thailand for that money. And when I got to the American Express, there was one letter waiting for me and that letter was from Ishwara Sama. And that letter said how, for several pages, how he was so, felt so lucky that he had met me because I was so wealthy. And I was reading it and I was thinking, so wealthy? <laughs> if only, and then I kept reading it and I kept reading pages and pages of all these things about how wealthy I was. And then the last line said, because you have God's love. And I clutched that letter for the next two weeks while I slept on hotel rooms, roofs, waiting for that money to come. And I can remember very clearly one night being up there and a man coming up the stairs and I was petrified because I thought, oh, a woman alone up on this hotel roof. This Thai man came up and he sat down beside me. He looked at the moon and he said, it's beautiful, isn't it? And I sort of thought, yes, it's beautiful. And we watched that moon and he was a very trustworthy man. Nothing horrible happened. We just looked at the moon and looked at Bangkok from the top of this, this hotel roof until it was time for me to go and get my money out of that bank. And I went down the stairs and I went across to the bank and I was very aware that the bank was in shadow and the other side of the room, the other side of the, the street was in the sun. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go back into that world, back into that world of materialism where it's so easy to get caught in wrong values. But I'm going to do it and I'm going to remember this and remember those values I'd learned from having no money and from recognising what true wealth really is. And I met some beautiful people in those times on all levels of life and that's where I learned about the language of the heart through that experience and I've brought it with me and I still meet people who speak that language in materialistic life, lots of them, and I'm sure that there's a lot of you sitting right here. Now I'm playing with the idea of there being one language of the heart, one language and that's the language of the heart, and now I'm starting to feel like there's also one religion and that's love. And my consciousness is moving from it being about me, like this lecture has and hasn't been, to it being about the world and us all finding that love together. And the way to find it, I believe, is to start speaking that language and to listen to those parts of ourselves that lead us where we're meant to go. I had a whole other talk prepared. I never said a word of it. <laughs> There's 13 major points that I was going to discuss, but I haven't mentioned any of them. <laughs> Pardon? Yes, you could ask what some of I was going to talk about, maybe I did this, but in another way. What I was going to do was talk about the process of connecting with the inner life and building trust. I guess I spoke about that. I was going to talk about the journey of spirit and how it takes us to love. I was going to talk about the process of raising consciousness more and more to truth and how sometimes we think we know what truth is until the next day and then we think we know what truth is until the next day 
And then we think what we know what truth is until the next day and how it expands. And we always think the day before, oh, I thought I was in truth then. <laughs> okay. And I was going to talk about learning to love the self and learning to love others. I was going to talk about the role of compassion and love that's needed to do away with wars and destruction in the world. I was going to talk about helping ourselves to overcome the perfectionist inside us that beats us up when we do things wrong. I was going to tell you what inspired me to write the book. And I was going to tell you about Ishwara Sama and the sadhu in Varanasi. I was going to tell you about Ananda Tarashan. And Ananda Tarashan I met soon after I had that experience, that death experience. Not long after I was out in the park crying, I was at a festival crying when I met her because what happened to me was that she was giving aura cleansings with a rod and Annie was sitting there doing healings. So I went up in front of Ananda and she gave me this aura cleansing and I thought, you know, I felt really different after she did that. And then when I sat down and the healing began, I felt, and while I was standing doing the aura cleansing, the same energy as what I'd felt in my death experience, the same energy as what I'd felt in that room in Holland with Jesus coming into my heart, the same energy as lying in the hospital with the white light coming and the same energy as when I stood in the cathedral. There it was again and this woman, Ananda Tarashan, knew how to give it to people. So I stuck with her because I wanted to learn how to give it to other people too. I didn't want to just have it for myself. I wanted to learn how to, how I could make others also come to know that light. And Ananda Tarashan has helped me to be able to do that. And I was going to talk about how through suffering we find love and how we find empathy with others and how without it we become cold and detached and isolated and judgmental. I was going to talk about our purpose for being here to spread love and how we can transfer light and consciousness using our heart and our eyes and our warmth and our good thoughts as tools to do that. And I was going to talk about how to work with things like self-pity and anger by looking higher for understanding, for perception and for higher consciousness and how we can create a space of non-judgment, a place where God can enter into our lives, where we can let him be the navigator. And I was going to read a story from my next book called The Enchantress. And I was going to tell you that the book, The Language of the Heart, is like another life for me, but I realise it's not. <laughs> and that it's where it comes from and it provides the seeds of my current self, my faith and my devotion. And I was going to tell you about the movement from the language of the heart to the religion of love. And then I was going to read from the prophet that piece from Carl Cabrain about love and following it even when it wounds you. Does that answer the question? <laughs> Are there any questions? What did inspire me to write the book? I don't know, that's a hard question. I guess, I guess I really wanted people to know that heaven was here on earth and that we didn't have to wait until we die to find it. And I thought if I wrote this book it would help people to come to know that. I really felt like when I died
died, I could have gone. And I made a choice to stay, and, I, and the choice to stay was with a purpose, and the purpose was, was to awaken people to the love inside themselves.